Let's get our Bibles open to Luke chapter 10. As you're doing that, I want to ask you a question. How many of you live in a neighborhood? Raise your hand if you live in a neighborhood. Okay, keep your hand in, your, in the air if you like your neighbors. If you have good neighbors, okay, good. Some of you lowered your hands. I'm sorry if you'd like to move into one of the neighborhoods of one of the people that have their hands in the air, that would be advisable. Now, uh, you've heard me tell you before that I have a degree in technology. How many of you knew that? Okay, I have a degree. I grew up in Oklahoma. I have a degree in, in and the degree is from uh, 1989. <laughs> I have a degree in 1980s technology. If you have a Tandy computer laying around, you a little work done, I'm your guy, okay? Now, the reason I have a technology degree, I've never told you this, okay? So, across the street from where I grew up lived the dean of the technology department of the local university. And he was a very good neighbor. And he had a few scholarships that he could hand out to anybody that he liked. And he didn't like me, but he liked my dad. And he, had, he felt sorry for me. So, he handed me one of these technology degrees and I, I felt like, okay, that's an answer to um, prayer. It's because I didn't have any money and we, nobody in my family had ever gone to college before. So I, that's why I have a 1980s technology degree. He was a really good neighbor. Um, State Farm has a slogan. What is it? Like a good neighbor. Mr. Rogers has a song. Who... It's a beautiful, there's a debate. Some of you are quoting Taylor Swift lyrics right now. You're totally confused, okay? Won't you be my... There you go. Now, um, let me tell you a phenomenon that was happening in my neighborhood yesterday, okay? So there were these two dogs that were running around in my neighborhood on the loose, and they were big dogs. And these dogs were making deposits in the yards of all the neighbors. And a little bit after that, I saw a man in our neighborhood I'd never seen before, and he was marching through the streets. He had big gloves on, and he had a shovel in his hand, and he had an angry look on his face. He was searching for said dogs. And I stopped him and I said, are you looking for the dogs? I thought they might have been his. He said, yes, I'm going to find the owner and I'm going to hand him the shovel and he's coming back to my yard. Okay. Now that was an angry neighbor. I hope that I don't, you probably don't want to live in my neighborhood anymore. But uh, anyway, what we're going to learn today is the answer to the question, who does Jesus say I am? And one of the things he says I am is a neighbor. And we're going to see one of the most familiar stories in the scripture. And we're going to have to be careful how we interpret it because honestly, it's been interpreted in a lot of different crazy ways through the years. So we have to be careful not to moralize it. We want to see it through a gospel-centered lens, okay? So are you ready for this? That story takes place in a conversation that Jesus was having with a lawyer. Let's pick up the story in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, do you have the picture of this? First of all, it's a lawyer. Now, this is not a lawyer like we think about a prosecuting lawyer or a defense attorney. This is not an expert in the laws of man. This is an expert in the laws of God. This was a theologian. He was a religious Bible fathead. He knew the first five books of the Bible, the books of the law, really, really well. And this lawyer, notice, stood up to Jesus. Just a little friendly advice to you. If you ever feel like you need to stand up to Jesus, I would advise you to remain seated. 
Because when he puts you in your place, you will have a less distance to fall from if you'll just remain seated. And Jesus is about to put this guy in his place, but the lawyer is about to put Jesus to the test. Now, if you ever were a student in school and had a good teacher, good teachers give tests to their students but good teachers actually want the students to pass the test. This guy did not want Jesus to pass the test, and he gives him the one question on the test. Here it is in verse 25. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Do you see that question? That's the best question ever. Everybody in this room, I hope at some point, has wrestled with the answer to that question. Have you ever in a quiet moment in the seriousness of your mind contemplated how you inherit eternal life? Notice it's an inheritance. That implies there is a father who gives a gift to a child. And this lawyer apparently has figured out God is a father. I want to make sure that I receive the inheritance as his child. And the gift is eternal life. This guy was grappling with eternity. He had a consciousness that he would live forever. You know, that's the first step in actually receiving salvation from Jesus, is you have to grapple with that you are an eternal being of the Creator. Have you ever slowed down long enough just to think about the fact that you have an eternal future, either eternal life in the presence of God, your Father, or separated from God eternally in hell. I remember the first time I ever had a consciousness of eternity. I really have a literal, it's one of my first memories. I was five years old. I was sitting in a tree of my neighbor across the street in Muskogee, Oklahoma. I remember for the first time thinking about God, thinking about forever, thinking about heaven and hell. Now, it wasn't the moment of my salvation, but God graciously kind of opened my eyes to the fact that there is an eternal destiny for my soul. I trust that even today you are grappling with the eternal destiny of your soul like this lawyer did. And we've got to find the answer to this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the default way that the human mind works is to think there is actually something I can do to impress God enough that he would give me something as wonderful and beautiful as eternal life. And yet Jesus knows there is nothing that you can do to merit eternal life. So Jesus in the conversation answers his question with a question to deconstruct his self-righteous understanding of who he thinks he is. And so Jesus answers the question with the question in verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? I mean, you're, a, you're an expert in the law, right? You've read the law. What have you read in the law? And then he asks a really great question. How do you read it? 
You know, the implication is this. You can read the Bible incorrectly. How do you read it? Do you read it correctly or do you read it incorrectly? So the guy gives the answer in verse 27. He answered, you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So this expert in the law summarizes the first five books of the Bible into two simple commands. And most of you know what these are, right? One is vertical, one is horizontal. How do you read it, Jesus says, and he said, I read it like this. Love God, love people. Simple. How did Jesus respond in verse 29? Actually, verse 28. He said to him, you have answered correctly. Congratulations. You understood. You can boil all the Ten Commandments, all of the other commandments that we read down to these two simple commandments. Love God, love people. And Jesus says this. This is hilarious. Do this and you will live. All you have to do to inherit eternal life is love God and love people. That's it. Here's the first point of the message here this morning. My inner lawyer must see the love that Jesus requires. Did you know that deep down on the heart of every person here today, there is an inner lawyer that is arguing for how good you are? And right now in your heart, that inner lawyer is trying to argue that you can actually love God enough and love people enough to inherit eternal life. Now, Jesus says all you have to do to inherit eternal life is love God and love people. But notice how you have to love God and love people. Because the guy gives the right answer. He says you have to love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and then cherry on top, just love everybody else as much as you love yourself. Do this and you will live. Now, let me ask you a question. If this week, let me just put it this way, if you ever at any time in your life have ever loved God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, all of your mind, and loved your neighbor as much as you love yourself, would you please raise your hand if you've accomplished that? I don't see any hands. I don't, as a matter of fact, does anybody know anyone who's ever done that? Nobody ever at any time has ever loved the Lord your God with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all of your heart and loved your neighbor as much as you loved yourself and said, Jesus says, just, just do that. That's all you have to do. That's the basic minimum requirement. That's the irreducible minimum for e inheriting eternal life is just to fully and completely, eternally and always love God and love people. In other words, you're going to need a substitute law keeper. You're going to need a substitute lover of God and people if you're going to inherit eternal life. Jesus is trying to deconstruct this guy's inner lawyer that's arguing for how good of a lover he actually is. Do you get what he's saying is? Here's the test. 
Do you adore God with your whole heart? Do you enjoy God with a soul-consuming love? Do you always and forever believe God with a mind-altering love? And do you serve God with a calorie-burning love? That's loving God with all of your strength. I mean, this is muscle. This is sweat. This is movement. Do you do that? And then when you get all those vertical things right, there's one horizontal thing. Uh, represent God with a self-denying love. Again, nobody has ever done that, which means the law has never qualified anyone to inherit eternal life. And yet this lawyer begins to argue for how good he is. Notice his response to Jesus' statement here in verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said, and who is my neighbor? He tries to get Jesus to lower the bar. Certainly Jesus doesn't mean that I've got to love all of the loveless, unlovable people that I know. Maybe Jesus just expects me to love my lovable neighbors. Can I get him to drop the bar a little bit? And notice why he was doing this. He was trying to justify himself. He was trying to argue his case. I, no, I'm good enough. I love enough. I love God enough. I love people enough. Jesus has to deconstruct that. So what he does is tells a story. He tells one of the most famous stories in the Bible. You probably know the story. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. How many of you think you could stumble your way through telling the story of the Good Samaritan? You, you have some basic knowledge. You've been to you don't raise your hand around here because you know I might call on you. I know what, you're just like, I don't trust that guy. Yeah, you're smart. Understand that we've got to make sure we don't butcher the most familiar story that we know in the Bible because we, we, we understand it's now in a Context. Jesus told this in response to a guy who's trying to justify himself. So understand this. Jesus does not tell the story of the Good Samaritan in order to try to motivate this guy to be good. The point of the story is not be gooder and try harder. I told you I didn't, I didn't get a degree in grammar. It's technology. So it's not be gooder and try harder. And yet that is the default setting of the human heart. We think to inherit eternal life, I have to do good and try hard. And Jesus is actually using this story to prove to him he's not a good neighbor. He's not a good law keeper. He doesn't love God enough. He doesn't love people enough. And that's the truth for every one of us. The only person we've ever loved with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength is who? Ourselves. That's our problem. And so Jesus tells the story to lean into that so this guy will stop justifying himself. Here's the second point. My sinful heart must receive the love that Jesus offers. And so Jesus tells this very familiar story. Now, when you hear the story of the Good Samaritan, we want to insert ourselves in the, as, the, as the Good Samaritan. And 
we do this all the time. The story of the Good Samaritan has leaked out in, of the church into culture. Uh, somebody told me this morning that uh, the life flight helicopter at uh, Parkland Hospital in, uh, in Fort Wayne is actually called the Samaritan. The Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, is a metaphor that we use in, in our English understanding of the Bible or, or just of culture for somebody that does good things for broken, difficult people. They go out of their way to meet a need. They might give some money. They might fix a meal. They might mow a grass, help an old lady across the street. Now, listen, you can do all of that and be a Boy Scout. That doesn't mean you're a Christian. It doesn't mean you're going to inherit eternal life. So we have to make sure we understand the point of the story. Don't insert yourself too quickly as the good Samaritan. Here's the story as Jesus told it, beginning here in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Let me just explain the picture because as soon as Jesus said that, this guy literally can see in his mind's eye, the, the road, the long and winding road that leaves Jerusalem and goes to Jericho. I've actually been on that road. And uh, this is what you have to know about it. The elevation of Jerusalem is about 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho is 17 miles away. It is 1,000 feet below sea level. It's the lowest spot on earth. And so this road, a 17-mile journey, goes 4,000 feet in descent. And it is a valley. It's a winding road. And there, there, there are caverns and there are caves on each side. It made it very dangerous because thieves and robbers would hang out there waiting for an unsuspecting passerby to come by. They would beat him up and they would rob him. And so Jesus goes on to tell that's exactly what happened. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So you have a priest and a Levite. Now, the priest and the Levite ministered in the temple in Jerusalem. Apparently, they had just been there. They'd been to the worship service. The priest and the Levite were kind of the worship leaders there, and, and they led people into the presence of God. They'd just been in the presence of God with the people of God. I mean, that, they just felt so comfortable there in Jerusalem, in the temple, with God's people, in God's presence. They leave that place and for some reason are going down to Jericho. They come across this guy who's been beaten, wounded, stripped, and is half dead. And they make the conscious decision to go around him. They don't stop. They don't lean into his need. They don't have compassion. We could say, well, why would they do that? There's a lot of reasons we could speculate. Maybe it's dangerous. They don't want to get beaten and robbed. Maybe the, guy, the same guy that beat this guy up or is around the corner. Some people have speculated, well, priests and Levites, they were not supposed to be around dead things, and so this guy was half dead, and so they didn't want to be unclean, and so they couldn't stop. There's a lot of different reasons, but at the heart, what Jesus is trying to say to this lawyer is this. The two guys that knew the law the best would have been the priest and the Levite. And yet the law did nothing to motivate them 
to show compassion for a guy in need. And that's what the law does. The law does nothing to help you fulfill it. The only thing the law does, the purpose of the law, is not to give you a list of do's and don'ts to qualify you for eternal life. The purpose of the law was given to you to show you you can't do what the law commands you to do to inherit eternal life. And the priest and the Levite were not motivated. Their heart wasn't changed. They had heartless religion. They had no compassion for this guy. Do you know what the story is telling us? All of us are like the priest and the Levite. We're like this inner lawyer that wants to argue for how good we are. But if you could ever actually see how many people you pass by and how heartless we are, it would prove to us we haven't met the standard of God's law and we cannot inherit eternal life because we have not shown compassion for people nor have we had passion for God. We're all broken. We need new hearts. Don't insert yourself as the good Samaritan. Insert yourself as the priest and the Levite, a heartless person that hasn't shown compassion. So how does Jesus change that? Secondly, insert yourself as the guy that is beaten and wounded and robbed, left in the ditch, half dead. Don't you understand? That's what sin does to me. Sin robs me of righteousness. And when other people sin against me, it robs me of my ability to trust people that speak for God, like the priest and the Levite. There's, there's kind of two different people in this room right now. Some of you right now are identifying with the priest and the Levite. And you're like, yeah, man, I'm kind of like that. I've, I've kinda, I know a lot about the law. I know a lot about the Bible. But man, I don't know if I really enter in and engage. I don't know if I have compassion for wounded people. There are other people in the room right now. And you are identifying as the wounded and broken guy who's robbed, left in a ditch, half dead. The, the story of your life is kind of ugly. I mean, you've, you've got stories about how you've been abused and mistreated and wronged and slandered and gossiped against. And a lot of those people that did that to you are self-righteous religious people. And you as a wounded person are sitting there going, that's right, preacher, you tell those religious people they need to have compassion on people like me who are wounded. And do you know what you're doing right now? You are making the same mistake that the self-righteous religious people are doing. You are alienating yourself from religious people the same way that the religious people alienate themselves from you. The story is this, we're all universally broken. Some of us are beaten up and robbed by law breaking. Some of us are beaten up and robbed by law keeping. But either way, we've been wounded and we're broken and we're half dead. The story is we need someone to show us compassion. And that someone is the one that's introduced in the next story or in the next verse. Look at verse 33. Here's another character in the story. But a Samaritan. Let's talk about a Samaritan. What is a Samaritan? I mean, what is that? That's actually a race of people. This race of people was a mixed breed people, half Jew, half Gentile. This race of people was created 
When the enemies of Israel, the Assyrians, invaded the northern kingdom, these armies came in, they set up shop in the promised land reserved for God's people, they intermarried with Jewish girls, and from that came this line of people that were called the Samaritans that kind of inhabited the northern part of Israel there. The Jews who were purebred descendants of Abraham hated the Samaritans, this mixed breed of people. And there was tension and conflict and they avoided one another like the plague. Jesus introduces the next character in the story, a Samaritan. Now notice what the Samaritan does. The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, the broken man, and when he saw this wounded man, he had compassion. And he went to him. He didn't go around him. He went to him. He bound up his wounds. He poured oil and wine on him. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. That would have been payment of a couple of months salary. He took these two denarii. He paid a price. He gave him to the innkeeper. Just Make a mental note about the innkeeper. We'll come back to him in a minute. And he said to this innkeeper, take care of him and whatever more you must spend, I will repay when I come back. So who does Jesus say I am? First of all, I'm a heartless lawyer. I'm this guy that's trying to argue for my goodness. But then secondly, he says that I am like this wounded man who's been robbed of righteousness. I'm left half dead. I've been beaten and robbed by sin. I've lost the fight against those that would try to rob me of my dignity and my worth. I, I have to see myself as a poor, helpless, left for dead sinner in need of compassion. My sinful heart must receive the love that Jesus offers. So if I'm the wounded guy, who is Jesus? Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's the one that comes, who sees me, who rushes to where I am, even though he should have bypassed me. He's the one that stops my bleeding. He binds up my wounds. He takes me to a place where I can get healing and wholeness. And he's paid the price for everything. And he says one day he's coming back to get me so that I can spend eternity enjoying eternal life with him forever. Before you can understand understand the point of the story, you have to see yourself as the wounded guy that Jesus has come to. We receive the love that Jesus offers. Stop trying to justify yourself. Remember the guy who was trying to justify himself? That's what, that's what an inner lawyer does all the time. He's arguing for his goodness. And yet, one of the most important verses in the Bible, Romans chapter 3, talks about this issue of justification. And he says, you and I are justified by His grace as a gift. There's nothing you can do to pay for it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You can't work it off. It is a gift that is received through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the Good Samaritan, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Healing, salvation, eternal life, is a gift that is received by faith. 
not a payment that is made by lawyers keeping the law. Have you received Jesus by faith? Stop trying to justify yourself. Stop trying to argue for your goodness. Just see yourself as the broken, wounded, robbed guy in need of compassion. If you open your heart to Jesus, he will come to you and he will restore what the robbers have stolen, your righteousness in Christ. Here's the last thing. My grace-rescued life must distribute the love Jesus modeled. Now, we've already said Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's the only one good. He's the ultimate Samaritan. He's the ultimate distributor of compassion. But do you see what it says? Look at verse 36. Jesus pulls out of the story. He comes back and asks the next question to the lawyer. He says, which of these three, do you remember the three? Levite, priest, Samaritan, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? We know the answer. He knew the answer. Verse 37, he said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Do you understand? Once you've been a recipient of compassion, you now become a distributor of compassion. Once you understand Jesus modeled what a good Samaritan looks like, you spend the rest of your life following Jesus as a good Samaritan. This is the thing. Jesus commands us to do imperfectly what he does ultimately. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been so radically altered by how much compassion Jesus has sown that it has compelled you to move toward broken, wounded, sin-scarred people? Our families tried to do this. I mean, it's hard. I mean, our whole life is, is just, we do this so imperfectly, but trying to say, Lord, here we are, and there's so many people in our path. We see wounded, broken, robbed people. We want to be available to you. We can't do everything. We can't do it perfectly, but we're going to offer ourselves to, to, to move toward wounded people. And if you've ever done that, you understand that it takes a whole lot more than a generous spirit and good intentions to actually make a difference in people's lives. And sometimes you, you feel like I'm running out of resources. I don't have everything I need to help this person. Here's what's given me hope this week is the other guy in the story that always gets ignored. Do you remember the innkeeper? Does anybody here think less of the good Samaritan that he took this guy and handed him off to the innkeeper? He must have thought, I need a paid professional to help do things I can't do. And so he paid the price. He didn't care any less. He had incredible compassion, but he was wise enough to know this guy's going to need long-term help and I, I, I can't provide what, exactly what this guy needs. So he invites this innkeeper to partner with him. This is the story of what we do as a church. We look at all the broken and the hurting people out there and we're like, oh my goodness, it's overwhelming. Here's the, here's the great news. You're not the only one who's trying to make a difference. You can partner with people to help and together 
We can move into the community to confront the needs that we see. This is what the, what the, the gospel does. It moves us to compassion. Now listen real closely. Compassion is not something you just feel. Some of you right now are feeling pretty good about yourself because I feel, I'm, I'm feeling like I should help people. Compassion is not just something you feel. Compassion is something you do. It's the gospel that compels us to reach out to people in our community who otherwise would never find their way into this building. There are people in this community that will never pick up a Bible. They will never tune to a radio station or listen to a podcast until we go to them and stop bypassing them. That's what a good Samaritan does. It's the gospel that confronts injustice everywhere it's found, whether, whether it's in a family, in individuals, or in communities. The gospel strips away every excuse that I've ever used to bypass people who look differently than me, who think differently than me, who act differently than me, and believe differently than me. The gospel compels me to move toward those people, not move away from those people. It's the gospel that compels us to confront the sin that we see all around us. That's why our heart breaks and we lament when we hear about a shooting. That's why we can't pass by people that we see that are abused or addicted or vulnerable in our communities. That's why we must have compassion on the poor and the under-resourced and the disadvantaged. Martin Luther King, the leader of the civil rights movement, often preached on the Good Samaritan. Here's what he said in one of his sermons. We are called to play the Good Samaritan in life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's pathway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It is not haphazard and superficial. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. What he's acknowledging is there are systemic issues. There are deep, complex things that require more than us just feeling badly that someone's hurting. It compels us to lean into those things. Jesus compels us to have a heart for widows and orphans and the unborn and refugees and immigrants. There's so many needs around us. The gospel compels us to extend grace toward those who identify as gay, lesbian, and transgender while we are lovingly telling them the truth about what God requires in his word. This is why we don't divide along political lines or racial lines or denominational lines in the church. This is why we don't marginalize or gossip people in the church who do things differently than us or have different convictions than us or have more freedom than us in gray areas where we're to use discretion. And this is why we take the gospel ultimately to unreached people that are outside of the content of the gospel. They have no access to the things that we have access to. And we get to those places as best we can to deliver the good news of Jesus. This is why we're planting a church in the heart of South Bend. Because we want to be a good neighbor to people 
that are hurting the most rather than just staying isolated in places and neighborhoods where it's a little safer. Here's the last thing. Do you remember the two commandments? What are they? Love God, love people. Do you know that it is actually sin to love people if you love people more than you love God? It is possible to love people without loving God. And when you do that, you make people your God. So loving others means that we persuade them to love God. Loving people means that we show them the urgency of repenting and responding to the great Samaritan Jesus who actually was beaten and robbed on the cross and stripped all because he loved them so much he wanted to include them, not exclude them. It's because we love God more than we love the approval of people that we are compelled to urge our neighbors to love God with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, and all of their strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. We don't do it perfectly. One day we'll introduce them to the one that does it ultimately. Let me ask you to stand together. And in these closing minutes, don't check out on me, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever seen yourself as that lawyer arguing your case for your goodness against Jesus, standing up to Jesus as if you're an equal somehow, thinking that you can merit eternal life through keeping the law? Why don't you just humble yourself and see yourself as the broken, wounded, robbed guy on the side of the road, half dead, actually all dead, in need of a resurrection. Here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus has compassion. He doesn't bypass those who will humbly cry out and say, I, I need mercy. He'll transform you. He'll give you a heart that loves God. And because we love God, we love people enough to introduce them to loving God. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes with me? In this moment, why don't you just humble yourself before the Lord Say, Lord, I need compassion. I'm like that lawyer who argues for his goodness. I want to think that somehow I can work off my sin debt. And Lord, right now, I see myself as broken by sin, my self-righteousness, my lack of compassion for you, my lack of compassion for others. Thank you for the cross. By faith, I receive you as my justifier. And Jesus, we do thank you that even this morning you have acted as a good Samaritan. You you haven't bypassed us. We, we could have gone through this whole service without you coming to where we are, and yet we sense that you are here. You're loving people right now that are wounded and hurting, don't have answers. 
Lord, I pray that they would respond by faith to the free gift of eternal life. And Lord, would you transform our hearts? God, deposit within us a love that we've never known, to love you, to love others, to move out of here into places, neighborhoods, where we would otherwise not go. Not because we're trying to be good, but because you've made us good. We pray in Jesus' name.